All right. Pardon the, the interruption of coming up here. Um, it doesn't matter where I stand to me. Mainly what I'm after is content, is getting the content from the Word of God to you in a way that you can understand it and it'll convict you and equip you. And um, so right now, my, uh, my little um, pointer thing is uh, I'm, I'm zero and it's got, it, it won. It's got twice now has failed me and said no. And um, the old joke about that I can't work technology uh, persisteth. So... <laughs> We're talking this morning about a very popular thing, very encouraging topic, uh, Christian suffering as part of the Christian spiritual life. Like, um, as G.K. Chesterton said, and I often quote, Christianity hasn't been found, uh, tried and found wanting. It's been, been found difficult and not tried. Because, for example, what we're talking about today, to grow spiritually is indeed to suffer. To grow physically is to suffer growing pains of many sorts, not just when your growth plates and your legs and your arms are coming together. And as you sleep, you have those growing pains. I remember that vividly from when I was a child. Um, uh, There are all kinds of growing pains. There's learning that other people reject you for no, no apparent good reason. And they take a hateful perspective about your very existence you know, haters. That's something you learn in like, I don't know, third grade. Little kids, they're mean. They don't treat you like you should be treated. They don't treat you like they should treat people. They're awful. And that hurts. And the first time somebody says something nasty to you that makes you wonder if it's really true, and, and then when you kind of think, yeah, I do kind of look funny, They might have a point, but I don't like that. That first pain that you have when someone's nasty to you, there's a little bit of a growing pain there because you've got to start thinking. And what you, you know, your mom teaches you, hopefully your mom taught you, consider the source. What kind of a person would say something like that? That's a great thought, isn't it? As you start dealing with with problems and with troubles, um, you grow and that's just life. But spiritually, there is growth and it does come through pain. It's been a great theme for theologians to emphasize. C.S. Lewis is famous for the problem of pain. And um, many others, perhaps one of the greatest books ever written, little books in English by Christians on the suffering of the believer, is called The, problem, uh, the Mystery of Suffering by James Hall Brooks. James H. Brooks, that's with an E, Brooks, B-R-O-O-K-E-S. He was a pastor of a large Presbyterian church during the Civil War and, and immediately after, uh, well, immediately after the Civil War, till almost, uh, till about his death in 1897, he was a very famous Bible teacher, Presbyterian minister uh, in St. Louis. And uh, he is known by, very, by fewer and fewer people as the father of American dispensationalism. And uh, we believe that he and Darby spent some time together, and he definitely was the mentor for C.I. Schofield, who gave us one of the first Um, comprehensive reference Bibles, um, the Schofield Reference Bible. And uh, Brooks' The Mystery of Suffering, if you can get a hold of it, it's a great little book, and um, it's hard to find, and what we need to do is, it's all, you know, it's it's long since 100 years old, we need to send the text off to Amazon and have them print off 100 of them for us, but uh, it's a great, uh, great work on the concept of suffering, and part of the concept is that God uses it for our good even when we hurt. Well, I do want to be a little bit conversational with you, so I want to ask 
if you could turn to Romans chapter 5, and um, we could play a little game. Does someone want to help me read verses 1 through 5 of Romans 5? Uh-oh. Where's that hand mic? Did you surrender it? Who's got it? All right, who's, who's, who raised that hand? Oh, okay, Michelle. You said Romans 5, 1 through 5. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. So we just heard from the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 that the Christian life will expect a really big, ugly word in verse 3. And it has a purpose. What's the big word in verse 3? Tribulation. tribulation Flipsis in Greek, which we usually just gloss that as the word tribulation. And it just means a trial, a suffering, a, a thing that you have to go through that hurts. But it's an expectation in the Christian life, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 5. But what's our attitude? Let's just do some observation. Inductive Bible study works through basically four steps. The first thing we do is we assume our theology, and then we read that into... Wait, no, that's not way. The first thing we do is we look at what the text says, because God has spoken, and to worship Him is to listen to Him. Let you speak first, God, and then I'll think about what you've said. I'm not going to think about what I want you to say first and then force your words into my scheme. So God speaks, we observe or recognize what he's saying. And then we ask the question, what does he mean by it? The step two is interpretation. What does God mean by what he says? Step three is where you take everything else he said on the topic, which is a constant an ongoing process, and you correlate it together so that you get the whole picture of God's counsel on the topic. And then finally, we don't want to stop at theology we want to actually live it so application we apply what he said observation interpretation correlation application this is called inductive bible study and it's a very helpful thought process to go through to make sure for example we're not forcing ourselves and our opinions on what god has said we want to be conformed to his character and not arrogate ourselves over him to tell him what he should have said and i have to tell you that when you're committed to theology that is a challenge it is a challenge to say, okay, my theology isn't the word of God. It's my understanding and it's going to have to grow and it has to grow every day. So it's a, it's a, it's a, this is a growing process. This causes some tribulation sometimes to go through this process. So what, as we observe verse three, is our attitude about tribulation? There's a statement he makes. I'm not interpreting. I'm just observing. Exult. exult. What does the word exult mean? We boast. Okay, so that con connotes a sense of the way I'm speaking about it, that I'm communicating something to others. And I agree, but is there an attitude that causes the boasting? Yeah. Yeah, there's a sense of, of joy, of elation, of happiness about it. Praise and thanks. Does this make us masochistic? Let me do some interpreting now. 
Masochism, it's a bad word. It's somebody that their, their, their brain is broken. Different than mine, anyway. And, um, and they want to feel pain to give them pleasure. They enjoy hurting. Masochism. It's more common than you think. Angsty youth engage in masochistic practices today that I didn't hear about when I was a kid, but it's a very common thing. The kids cut. They cut themselves so they feel pain, but then their body gives them a little bit of a, of a reward as they recover from the pain. Little kids, you find young teenagers cutting their bodies. Just, just, so so th- it's a real problem. Don't laugh at masochism, but that's what it is. Do we, are we masochistic? Do we feel pain and say, oh, yes. Is that why we exalt? No, there is a thought process. Let me observe something with you. We exalt in our tribulations because we, next word, no. See, I, my whole thing about the Christian life is what you think before it's what you feel. It really isn't for me. I like it, but I think I like it because it's, I've been in the word enough to, to want it. We exalt in our tribulations because we know something about them. Right? This is just an informed, this is just reading the text and letting God speak. We know what? What do we know, John? Verse 3, tribulation brings. Tribulation brings perseverance. Let's just let that word stand and assume it doesn't mean a technical theological concept from Dortrecht. Persever- a fifth point of Cal- He's not talking about Calvin here. Fifth point of Calvinism and true believers will really act like until they go to heaven and then they'll know they're elect because they're there. Um, no, he's not talking about that sense of perseverance. That would be bringing theology and forcing it on the text. He's talking about the actual stick-to-itiveness that means you have the grit to, to stay the course. If the power went out right now, and I haven't planned to do this as an illustration that you would actually experience, but if it did, it would work. If the power went out right now, we who are used to about somewhere between 71.5 and 72.5 degrees for our, our bodies to be comfortable, we would have to either quit or persevere. I might take off my jacket after a few minutes because, well, I would quit wearing it, but I would persevere and take, do the necessary adjustments to continue the course. But my point is, we would have a little challenge to our concentration. It would be hard on us. Eventually, it would be so nasty in here, so absolutely vile and disgusting from sharing each other's breath without the benefit of the air conditioners drying the air that we would have to go outside in the sunshine and feel the, the air blowing on us. It would be cooler to be outside after we've been in the oven for a while. And you know what we would do outside? We would find a way to arrange ourselves probably on the little slope back there and I would go and teach you without benefit of amplification or projection. And we would continue to persevere. We would continue to do what's necessary to do the job, to keep the mission going. Have you ever been trying to do something that you want to do, you think God wants you to do? Raise the kids is one that comes to my mind a lot. But have you ever done something that is your job, that you know is your duty, and you've got your heart in the right place? Literally, you're taking it to the Lord. Father, it's for you. Help me serve you and your power as you start the day. You go through the day, and you get obstacle after obstacle after difficulty after rough 
tough spot after trying to drag my life through some sort of sandpaper nightmare? Have you, you know what I'm, no, do you, you know that day? You're like, Lord, I'm doing this for you. What? Because he's, he's, you're not there yet. You're not done. He's still growing you. He's still maturing you. And so that's the concept that Paul's bringing out in Romans 5, is you need to rejoice because you know you have a father who's perfectly designed your life and his, his objectives for your life to bring you to the place he wants you to be. And it hurts after a fashion, but it sometimes, and it hurts in different ways sometimes. Sometimes the pain is, is catastrophic loss. Sometimes the pain is continual frustration. I, I'm the kind of person that if, you, if, if I'm trying to do something and I hit a brick wall, I'm usually good until right about, I don't know, the second brick, no, the, the third, fourth, or fifth brick wall, somewhere in the process, if I've been told no four or five times in a row, I have to like, probably the best thing for me is to sit down and just reboot the, the processor. Just start over with the Lord and, uh, and let it go. But usually I don't do that. Usually I think opposite thoughts and, um, and I attack the, the, the object of my frustration in a sinful way. I'm not here to just confess my sins and my humanity to everyone, but I mean, I think we can all experience this. You get frustrated and you don't think. You, you emote, you react, and then you do something stupid in anger that seems so smart at the time. I am so intelligent. I'm so intelligent when I'm angry that my rationalizations actually make me an idiot when I'm not angry anymore and I go back into the reality of how to really think about things I look at my my choices and my rationale it made perfect sense when I was angry but I was stupid because I was angry so my, my point is Paul says there's a right attitude that comes with a right understanding about suffering and this is how to go through the Christian life now perseverance does something else <clears throat> This is an easy passage to interpret. This is, what, this is a fun one. This is, we're not suffering through Romans 5, 1 through 5. This is really easy. He says, not only this, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. What does perseverance give me? So if I develop in perseverance and I stick through and I don't quit, never, ever, 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 ever quit. Last week we had the Special Operations Forces Army style and uh, the, the Special Forces A-teams. Um, I've watched enough YouTube video documentaries of SEAL school, the Navy's special operations warfare people, that they're not necessarily, you have to be in extremely high physical condition to be a Navy SEAL, but it's not just about the physical conditioning. In fact, most of it is about the commitment that no matter what happens, I will not quit. And that's what they're going for. They're trying to force as many people to quit as they can. So they're left with the guys who can make the march and do all the physical stuff, but who will, no matter what, never quit. That's the idea. And that, that's perseverance. But what do you get if you spend time persevering? This is my interpretation of what he's saying, how it comes about with proven character. If you get developed through your suffering and you stay with it, the character capacity of perseverance then after you've persevered, you look back and we have proven character. And that's called momentum to me. I think that when I can look back and say, I've actually stayed with it. I've actually served the Lord and he's showing me this and he's showing me his sufficiency. 
and I'm trusting him on a consistent basis. I look back on that, that track record and proven character. It's the character of Christ. It's not about me. It's what God's doing in me. But that's what you're going for. And you can't get there without suffering. You can't do it without tribulation. I wish there was another way. I mean, but there's not. This is a great explanation for anytime you have that question, why? Why do I have to go through this? <clears throat> there are more than one cases uh, in this church, quite a few, a few cases of unexplained suffering in the life. It's one of the first things I experienced as a pastor, seeing people suffer and we didn't know why. We didn't know why medically, we didn't know why uh, in any case, but they yet had to deal with it. There was no option but to deal with it. And I have to come back here. Rather than speculating, oh, well, there's a sin problem. Or um, speculating, well, it's because of your parents. Or all the other ways that we get superstitious and mystical and try to think through things that God hasn't told us. We should go to God's revelation and let him tell us how to think about our suffering. When I don't know why, yes, I do. Because as I trust him, he brings about perseverance in me. And as I persevere, he brings out my proven character, his character in me. What else do we get out of proven character? Alan. Alan with the hope. We get hope. Now, what's hope in the Bible? Anybody want to venture a lexical suggestion? I mean, this is, this is elpis in the noun form, elpizo in the verb. I think it's technical the way Paul uses it, and it's not how we use it. What you got? Yeah, it's best understood not as a question mark of what I'd rather have. That's how we in, in our culture think of hope. And so it's unfortunate that we call this word hope. But biblical hope is based on what God has said he'd do and who he is, and therefore I trust in him and his word. I'm expecting him to do what he said. So it's an expectation. There is anticipation in it that you don't have it yet. You're expecting it. And that's why we call it hope, because the way we talk about hope, we don't have it yet either, but we'd really like it. Oh, I hope so. Is the air conditioner going to run for the whole service today? Oh, I hope so. But as we sang number 78, that ties in nicely. Our hope is in the Lord. And that means we expect him to do what he said. We don't have it in hand, but we expect it. And that is a life of anticipation, Christian hope. And this is, this is where the, the life goes. If you do not have a, a life perspective, like an attitude of your life, where you're always expecting God to be God, to do what he said, to fulfill his promises, to put you in a resurrection body, where you inherit all things with Jesus Christ, the heir of all things. If you don't see yourself this way, even though we're broken and, and suffering and struggling in this life, then you're not in hope yet. We're not there because we haven't spent enough time persevering to be given and, and be able to see our proven character so that we see what, wow, God's doing something and so he's going to do everything he said. And so it has to do with because of my experience with the Lord and you can't have experience unless you actually go through the experience. Because of this track record of proven character, now I can say I'm expecting him to do everything he said. Now as a baby Christian, before I had ever suffered for the Lord, I was expecting because I trusted him and I believed in him. But now I've seen him work. Now I've experienced the Christian life. And my hope is stronger by that much. 
because I'm, I've seen and, and I'm, I'm better able to understand what I'm expecting him to do to be. I, I can tell a little kid about all things working together for good. For, 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 for you, for you who love God, for you who are called according to his purpose. I can tell you about this, but that's going to become more real to me. It's going to become more of an expectation for me as I walk with him, as he brings me through tribulation and de- develops proven character. Psalm 23 describes this. The personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, our great shepherd, says 1 Peter chapter 2. So the Lord is my shepherd, says David, the great shepherd, or the, the, the under-shepherd. David, the shepherd who's going who's to shepherd his father's flocks, and then he shepherds the flock of Israel as the king, says that he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And where those paths take us is a doozy. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Why am I in the valley of the shadow of death walking? Because he's leading me in the paths of righteousness. Verse 3 is before verse 4 in Psalm 23. See, so this path, even this is the expectation that he's showing me what he can accomplish. Look what the Lord can do. Now, what about, what about um, Israel? What about God's demonstration of his glory through the hardening of Pharaoh? You know, God could have so orchestrated events that Pharaoh could have been, I mean, he flips a switch in Nebuchadnezzar's brain and he all of a sudden lives like an animal. He becomes like a werewolf kind of person without the cool part. He's just an animal in his mind. He lives out among the animals. God can flip the switch, but he doesn't in Pharaoh. He hardens him through circumstances and leads him to, to magnify the glory of the power of God. So as the plagues continue... And all of the worldview of Egypt is ravaged by God's destruction of all the systems of nature that they're worshiping and there are thousands of gods in Egypt. And so God is showing there's one God and it isn't the Nile and it isn't the flies and it isn't the frogs and it isn't the gnats. And the God, the God that is calling you made all these things, he's controlling all these things and your magicians can't control these things. And as God is glorifying himself through the 10 plagues of Egypt, we're like, wow, this is a long way to get it, to, if your goal is to just get Israel out of Egypt, there are lots of ways he could have done it. He could have put them in such a bad famine that Pharaoh's like, get out because there's not enough resources and uh, we're not going to eat you, so leave so we have enough food left. He could have done that. He didn't do it. He did it in the prime of Pharaoh's power. And they had to go, Israel had to go through this long process of waiting and watching the glory of God. And my favorite illustration of tribulation for Israel is the Red Sea deliverance, the Sea of Reeds, Yom Suf, Sea of Reeds, where they're backed up into an impossible situation. They could not, this is Exodus 14, they cannot possibly get away from Pharaoh. And they're distressed in their heart. They're frightened to death that you've brought us out here and now you're going to kill us. And by the way, the Shekinah, the the presence of God revealed in a pillar is leading them. They see the presence of God. The presence of God stands between Israel and Egyptians while God parts the Sea of Reeds so that they walk across on dry land. See, God brought them to this awesome tribulation, this awesome fear of of death and what man can do with the strongest military probably in the world at that time and the most uh, devastating portion of the military which we all know 
is the cavalry. And he brought this awesome cavalry force to come kill them and then stop them from doing it. See, and, and you watch this process and God brings you to the, there's no way, he can't possibly save us and he's brought us out here to kill us. That's what Israel, the Israelites said. And then he says, no, this is really simple. First of all, pillar of fire surrounding Israel to stop Pharaoh from coming across. Well, well that's good. When's that going to burn out? Never. But then, you know, I don't want to just leave you here on this beachfront property forever. I actually have some place I'm going to take you. So we'll let the pillar of fire do its job. And we're going to separate the Red Sea so that you walk across on dry land. Okay, wow, we didn't see that coming. We would rather have believed that God who delivered us through the 10 plagues of Egypt was going to kill us than believe that he was going to do something with his nature. And so now we know more about God. We have a better perspective. We're stronger. And now we have some perseverance if we repent of the lack of faith we had. And now we understand who we're dealing with. So we walk across on dry land and then what happens? Well, God takes away the fire to stop the Egyptians. What's he doing? (laughs) They're coming, right? But he does it with perfect timing. For us, we're stressing. For God, they're walking across and here comes Pharaoh and they're hurrying. And then all of a sudden, dead. All of a sudden, God says, yeah, this was the plan all along. And I'm pleased to show you that I had this in mind. And, And we just, we marvel at the beauty of God's design of, of the story. But if you were in the situation, we're watching this thing from a, you know, a bird's eye view of the situation. If you're down in the timeline or the map of walking through this, you don't see all these. You don't see it until you experience it. And that's a great example for how suffering can produce hope, ultimately, an expectation of what God said he'd do, that he'll do it because we come to know him better. And hope doesn't disappoint, I think, in verse 5, because it puts us on mission. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hope delivers. When God makes a promise, he carries it through. Luke, Luke writes a third of the New Testament under the Apostle Paul. Luke and Acts are apostolic because they're under the Apostle Paul because Luke is his physician. Luke's emphasis of the Great Commission, remember what that is when Luke talks about uh, the last words of Jesus before his ascension? We have it in Luke 24 and in Acts chapter 1. And in both of those passages, the theme, the emphasis Luke brings out is the same emphasis. Remember what it was? Luke 24, the promise of the Father. Acts chapter 1, uh, you'll receive it when you wait in Jerusalem. The promise of the Father. In Acts chapter 1, what is it? When you wait, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Acts 1.8. And you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Luke's emphasis is the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Father that he would send the Spirit. John chapter 13 through 17, the, the uh, upper room discourse. And then, he, and then he emphasizes it more clearly in Acts 1. My point is, the power to bring about the mission God gave us through the Lord Jesus Christ is the third person of the Trinity resident in you, the Holy Spirit. So I'm not out of step 
with that whole view of what's going on in Paul's life when I see him say that the Holy Spirit is the one who brings the love of God forth in our hearts. And if we will relate the concept of perseverance born hope to love being expressed through us, we're talking about the full functioning maturity of a Christian. As you grow in 1 Thessalonians 3, love grows. Your capacity to love with the love of God grows as he further and greater expresses himself through you. And so love is showing you... The, you're, see what, I think what you're saying, let me, let me illustrate. If you love someone self-sacrificially and you're conscious of it that I'm actually doing this and I don't know where this came from, I mean, this isn't me. I don't live in a particularly altruistic civilization where we're actually going to put ourselves out for someone else, Right? But if I find myself choosing to do that as a priority instead of taking care of myself, so I'm disregarding self and concerning myself for the other for God's sake, when you become conscious that this is happening, that you're making this choice, this priority, you're seeing that hope doesn't disappoint. This is God bringing forth his character through you and you're seeing it be expressed. So hope is, you, you, you say, wow, I, I trusted him that he was going to do something with me. And he is. I see him working in me. So hope doesn't disappoint. He's, he's bringing forth this work in me. And what an enjoyment, what a, what a joy to see that change in ourselves. You know what's also fun? People that know you, people that watch you, and who are not jaundiced against you in their perspective, people who are actually looking for your best, they can see it. They can see there's a change. I'm seeing Christian love where before not necessarily. But regardless of whether I can see it in you, when you see it in yourself, because God's showing you the development of your character through your choices, through his work in you, this is what we're talking about. Hope doesn't disappoint. Well, this this is a fun study in suffering and spirituality, but notice we started with some medicine we don't want to take. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to have to go through tribulation so that I get perseverance, so that I can have proven character, so I can see that hope doesn't disappoint. Because through that suffering, I find myself loving. I don't want to go through that. Well, that's just my arrogance. Of course I want this. This is the blank check that God said he wants to give you everything. And this is how he does it. You get more of him through suffering. Okay, I'll take it. It's going to hurt. Not as I will, but your will be done. Is how Jesus teaches us to think about his father. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Who said James and Paul don't agree on things? Come on. It's exactly the same concept, different language, different vocabulary, same exact concept. Your faith, the testing of your faith produces endurance. And I believe every test you face, every suffering is a test of faith. We have something in us that automatically concludes God isn't good because I'm hurting. It's amazing. I stub my toe. Come on, God right? Our mind just snaps to, well, God isn't doing what exactly I want him to do. And it's his fault and blah, blah, blah. We want to believe in sovereignty so we can rail against his unrighteousness in our arrogant perceptions. It's just the sin nature. It's the sin nature is uh, is programmed, pre-programmed for contrary thoughts about God. So I believe every test is a test of faith. And maybe you know this experience when you're suffering and you, you don't understand and you have to choose to trust him. Do you know that experience where it's not like a second nature thing, you just kind of faith snaps, but you're actually in this crisis where you're like, God, 
how do I trust you through this? And, you, and that, that's almost the prayer. God, help me trust you. I'll make the choice, but you're going to have to bring the power. I can't do this on my own. The testing of your faith produces endurance. And so the command, let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Christians, contrary to my brother Wesley, he's not talking about you becoming a sinlessly perfect human in this, in this side of the resurrection. That, that's coming. You'll be resurrected. Even you. All of you. If you have Christ, you're going to have resurrection. But as we're walking toward that day, we're being sanctified. We're being developed. There's a positional sanctification. There's the experience of sanctification that we're talking about here in suffering. And then there's the ultimate sanctification or glorification in our resurrection body. Well, here, endurance has its perfect result so that we may be mature would be a better translation. Complete lacking in nothing. Spiritual maturity means that you're capable. I like to talk about maturity this way. There's a big difference between a 16-year-old and a 25-year-old. Man. <laughs> Here's the, let's put it into young men terms. The difference between a 16-year-old and a 25-year-old, all of us that are 40 and over, or 36 and over, have dealt with younger guys that don't yet know what a 12-hour workday looks like. It's more than two hours, guys. It's more than I worked a little bit, now let's have some potato chips. It's actually work, and it's hard to grow into that. We know the difference between 16 and 25. And our prayer is that it happens that they get from 16 to 25, you know, like, so really be careful about your driving, young guys, because that's how they get, that's how you, uh, you go from this life to the next prematurely, statistically. Watch how you drive and watch the road and turn off your phone and all that. But we know what a 16-year-old is. We know a 25-year-old. And we'd say a 25 better be mature. Often isn't the case. It's tragic. It's American, you know, manhood today. We're not turning out men so much. And you know, the more you talk about manhood, that's toxic masculinity and we're losing our minds. But anyway, um, let's say that we see a 25-year-old who knows how to work. Now we've got somebody that's mature. That's maturity. They're there. They're complete. They're grown. And they're now functioning as an adult. But we wouldn't expect a 25-year-old to be a 50-year-old. There's a difference in maturity, isn't there? There's a complete lacking nothing, 25. But we're not done. And the 50-year-old knows better than the 25-year-old that we're not done. We're in process, and there's the humility that continually grows. And maturity is a lifelong process. But there is a sense where you're there, and there's a sense where, yeah, I'm there enough to rent a car <laughs> at 25. But... Um, I'm not where I'll be when I'm 35. It's very helpful to think that way. But see, this is the concept of maturity. If you're a baby, you're not anywhere near the 16-year-old. And if you're 16, you're not where you need to be when you're 25. But when you're mature, when you're there, when you're complete lacking nothing, it's because you've been through a process. Trials, the testing of faith that has produced endurance so that in that process, we don't resist that painful training we embrace it remember when a little kid as we close having to massage the top of my knee that'd be my left leg or my right leg I remember at least 20 or 30 times growing up that I would wake up with this really bad pain in my legs I talked to someone the other day like no I never felt that I'm like wow you're a lot shorter but anyway um you know I, 
and therefore less susceptible to back problems and so forth. But anyway, um, the, the, that pain, and, and you know, we could, get, we could manage it if I massaged properly. If my mom showed me, showed me how to rub my leg where it hurt, and we could do, attenuate that pain a little bit, but it's bone movement. It's going to hurt. And um, I can be angry about it and resist it and hate that. And um, in this illustration, I can't forestall the process. Your bones are going to do what they're going to do. But you can stunt your growth when God brings a challenge. You can stop the process by not engaging your faith and not exulting in the tribulation. That's the right attitude to have. Now, of course... The challenge to teaching on, on suffering as a Christian is that you're about to go through it because now you have to use what you've learned. So I've cursed you by teaching about suffering that you're headed to suffering. But we all know this. We're all already suffering. We can look back on our lives and say, you're telling the story of my life. And if you're not there, you probably are, and it's a different way to think about it. But my prayer for you is that you'll bring a word of encouragement to those around you that are suffering. Don't start hammering them with, count it all joy, my brother. But you need to have that hope that there's an answer. I know there's an answer to this, and there's a different way to think about it. And if you'd like, I can show you Romans 5. I can show you in James chapter 1. There's a different way to think about this that puts it into an eternal perspective, if you'd like. Let's pray about it. Father, we want to be ministers of the gospel, advocates of your grace and the joy Uh, that's in us we want to give an answer for everyone who asks a reason for our hope and so father as you bring forth your love through us as we consider others and how to um, help them how to be about your interests in their lives father give us words to say as our brothers and sisters are discouraged help us show the encouragement of an eternal perspective about suffering father when we are suffering if we need a word of encouragement from, from Paul or James or, or from a brother that, or sister that brings these thoughts back to us, help us be receptive. But Father, yet let your spirit work this maturing process in us as we suffer and as we trust you, as you bring forth your hope in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.